this morning to bring y'all God's Word from Luke chapter 2. So go ahead in your copies of God's Word, whether hard copy, digital copy, turn to Luke chapter 2. Um, last week we wrapped up our Advent series, and in the coming weeks we're starting a new series on Gospel 101. So this is sort of the in-between place where uh, we just tell the youth pastor to go try his best. Uh, and I thought it'd be pretty uh, interesting this morning if a week after Christmas, we begin looking at the scriptures to see what happened starting a week after Christ's birth. Are you guys with me this morning? Yeah. All right. Well, if you are in Luke chapter 2, uh, please stand. It's a way that I like to honor God's word if you're able. Um, and I will read uh, the passage aloud. This is Luke 2, 21 to 38. Here now, the reading of God's word. His word is holy and inerrant and inspired and infallible. Amen. Amen. Uh, verse 21, and at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and the sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Uh, remain standing as I pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for this word. Uh, thank you for this time that you've blessed us with together and the freedom that we have to gather. Thank you in this season for the ultimate gift. Be with me now. Bless my words and bless the ears and the hearts of my hearers. Let us, none of us, go away unchanged. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks. You guys can be seated. Um, you heard the text of God read aloud. Uh, in this text, I believe Luke highlights three things. So this message, uh, three things will be highlighted. Number one, Christ fulfills all of the law. 
Number two, Christ fulfills all of the promises. And then I think Luke would have us have a proper response to those two things. Again, are you guys with me? Thank you. This is way more already. It's way more interactive than the first service. Um, uh, <laughs> contextually, uh, again, it's, it's good to look contextually before we begin any study into God's word. Um, immediate context and then some broader context. For the past 400-ish years before these things take place, we have a period known as the intertestamental period, uh, and it's marked by divine silence. So from Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, to Matthew, or in this case Luke, the Gospels of the New Testament, there's 400 years, four centuries, where God does not speak authoritatively through a prophet. And there's 400 years of wars and nations, plural, waging wars, capturing, enslaving Israel. And 400 years of Israelites waiting for God's promise. And 400 years of generations dying in silence. But then what happened in this season? God spoke. He sent angelic messenger after angelic messenger, proclaiming that the promises that he made thousands of years ago and the promises that he made 400 years ago were coming to fruition now in this moment. And he spoke and the Christmas season, the Christ child, the God-man, the Messiah was born. And in this season, there was chaos and, and havoc. And those of you who have had children know the chaos of childbirth. And this is magnified in this season by the miraculous nature and the divine nature of everything taking place. And we pick up the story when some normalcy finally resumes. And we will see in the first several verses of our text that Christ fulfills the entire law of God. Look with me now at verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel, before he was conceived in the womb. We read first and foremost that Jesus was circumcised. So the question needs to be asked, what is or what was circumcision? Here's a point for you. Uh, if you want to read the New Testament well, you need to know the Old Testament better. So what is circumcision from the Old Testament? Uh, God cut a covenant, pun intended, with a man named Abraham. You guys got that right away. The first service didn't. Um, God cut a covenant with a man named Abraham, and he said, hey, Abraham, um, I am going to be your God, and I'm going to be a God to you and to your children, and I'm going to be a God to your children and your children's children and your children's children's children on forever. I love saving families. And I love saving families so much that the sign of this covenant with you, I'm going to take from a sexual organ showing the procreation or the familial nature of my covenant. And anyone who you circumcise will be in my covenant. It is a physical sign of holiness. It literally sets the people of God apart from the nations that surround them. It's a present act of obedience by parents performed on their children, claiming the, uh, God's faithfulness over their child's life, according to God's promise. In circumcision, the parents said, God, you have promised to be a God to me and my children. You have promised to cut away the sin of my child. So I will cut away this foreskin showing the, the, the future reality of that. 
It is a sign of the covenant. It's also a sign of redemption. We read in Hebrews chapter 9 and throughout the Old Testament, actually, that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. So it's a bloody sign of redemption. And it is a sign of warning. The hope of circumcision is that God would cut away the sin from my child. But the warning of the sign of circumcision was that if my child does not live up to this covenant of works in the Old Testament, that they will be cut off from God. So there's hope and then there's warning. It introduces the requirements of law-keeping. So why was Jesus circumcised if he knew no sin? If he was born from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, he had no seed of Adam. He had no inherited original sin. Why did Jesus need to be circumcised if he had no sin to cut away? Well, Jesus was circumcised, firstly, to identify with sinners. Remember, this sign of circumcision brought one under the law. Galatians 4, he was brought under the law to redeem those under the law. He identifies with us in circumcision, bearing the full weight of the law as we all were born into. And we'll see that Christ fulfills that weight of the law as we could not. Secondly, he again fulfills the law. This shows even in his infancy, even in his uh, childbirth, he is obedient to the law. This points to Jesus' baptism as well. If you've ever asked yourself, why was Jesus circumcised? You've probably asked yourself, why was Jesus baptized? Baptism is not just a New Testament concept. John didn't invent baptism. Um, in Matthew chapter 3, John actually asks this question, Jesus, you shouldn't be baptized. Why do you want to be baptized? You need to baptize me. But Jesus gives the answer. No, this needs to take place to fulfill all righteousness. Even baptism has its roots in Old Testament law, and Christ somehow in his circumcision and baptism is fulfilling the law. We see this over and over in Luke, according to the law, according to the custom of the law, according to the law of the Lord. He is highlighting Christ's law-keeping. And finally, it foreshadows the day in which he will be cut off. You remember the warning of circumcision? If you don't do this, you'll be cut off from God. Well, it foreshadows the day when Christ was circumcised. He was spiritually killed, bearing the weight of all of God's elect. He was cut off for us. At his death and resurrection, spiritual circumcision was completed. But now it is no longer a sign of God's covenant because that blood required was paid. The sin to be purged was cut off when it was placed on Christ. And now we, the Reformed, who see continuity between the Old and the New Testament, see the sign of God's covenant, same covenant, different sign. It's no longer a bloody sign, but it is a purifying and cleansing and washing sign. The waters of baptism signify the sprinkling of the blood that was paid. Our blood is no longer required. Christ's blood washes us. This is the first way we see him fulfilling the law, even in infancy. Look with me at verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, 
they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So what's happening here? When time came for their purification. In Old Testament law, there was a period of 40 days that a woman had to quarantine herself after childbirth. Um, and some people uh, with like modern sensibilities read misogyny into that text. Like, how dare you? Birth is magical. You, you don't need to, quor- it's not dirty. Like, how da- it's not misogynistic, I promise. It's actually safeguarding. This quarantine period is to safeguard the woman and the child. There's no hygiene products. There's no daily baths. There's no hot water. There's no antibiotics. There's no steroids. There's no staples. There's no way to have a sterile environment in which to have a child. And so for 40 days, all of the filth of childbirth can be purged in a quarantine. It's protection from infection. It's not misogynistic. And to fulfill the law, Mary does this. The end of 40 days, their family goes up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on a mountain. You always go up to Jerusalem. Again, according to the law of Moses, this is a theme. Jesus, even in infancy, through his family, completes the law. Verse 23 As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. There's a second reason they go up to Jerusalem. Back in Exodus, when God um, is first establishing his law with his people, he says this. um, Do you remember when I led you out of Exodus, out, out of Egypt? And before I led you out of Egypt, you took lamb's blood with hyssop branches and you wiped it over your, um, your dwelling places. And if my angel of death saw that blood, I passed over you. But if I didn't see that blood, what happened? The firstborn child, was the firstborn male was killed. In a way of remembrance, God commands his people, because I spared your firstborn in Egypt, now I want the firstborn of every tribe, the firstborn male of every family of every tribe, to be consecrated consecrated to me for the priesthood. It shows principles of first fruits going back to the garden with Cain and Abel and their first fruit sacrifices. Now, um, if you're keeping up, because I know you're drinking from a fire hose, um, if you're keeping up, you can look at me and say, Gordon, wait a minute, the Levites are God's priests. Not every single tribe gets the right of priesthood. And you're right. Now. But that changed. In Exodus, it was every male of every firstborn male of every family of every tribe. But when did that change? Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law from the Lord. The people are waiting in the valley, waiting impatiently, waiting imperfectly. And we see Aaron, who is supposed to be the high priest, make golden calves, idols, literally, for the people to worship. Moses comes down, sees the idolatrous people. God's wrath is kindled. God demands and commands justice. So who stands with Moses? What tribe stands with Moses to execute God's judgment? The Levites. It's from that time on, God says, okay, now only the Levites can be priests. The Levitical priesthood has followed the Israelites for the millennia. Here's, I said problem in the first service, and I don't think that's the best word. Um, Here is an interesting thing, though. God's law that he established in Exodus is still established. So what happens if you're from the tribe of Judah or the tribe of Benjamin or the tribe of Asher and you're the firstborn of your family? You are still required to be consecrated to the Lord. So the firstborn still gets brought to the temple to be consecrated. And once the priest finds out, oh, you're not a Levite, well, you can't be a priest. 
The family then redeems their child. So they buy them back with five shekels of silver. Now, why is this important? It has implications for how Jesus is our great high priest. Christ fulfilled the law as a firstborn male by being consecrated to the Lord. He's not of the tribe of Levi. And no gospel records an account of his parents redeeming him. So the firstborn child, consecrated to the Lord, we later see is our great high priest. He's not Aaronic. He is not Levitical. He is of the order of Melchizedek, a greater high priest, still fulfilling the law. I hope you're with me. Look with me at verse uh, 24. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. This is a third way in which Christ fulfills the law. Now, again, we're talking a lot about this law. I'll get to gospel later, I promise. Every good sermon starts with law and ends with gospel. We'll end with gospel, I promise. Um, so the, uh, in the law, once you have a child and you go through your purification and you take them up to the temple, um, you are to offer sacrifices for purification. And the law states... A lamb is required. If the family can't afford a lamb, they give two turtle doves or two pigeons. This shows the humble and lowly estate of the family God the Son was sent into. It shows that redemption is for all people, not just the affluent or the influential. And there's irony here, and I hope you saw it. God required a lamb as a sacrifice for purification. Mary says, I can't afford a lamb. And what happens at the crucifixion? The Lamb of God is sacrificed. There is irony here. What am I getting at? Why so much law-keeping? In Christianity today, most of, uh, broadly speaking, most of what we hear is this. Jesus was a perfect sacrifice, and he offers you forgiveness, which is true. And, and you should applaud that, and it's a great thing, and we love that. But that's about half the story. It's often left out that Christ, as a second Adam, perfectly fulfilled and kept the law. With sacrifice, we have forgiveness. But with his completion of the law, we have his righteousness. Christ's merit imputed to us by faith. And this is the point. When God looks at you, he doesn't just see you as forgiven. When God looks at you, he sees you as if you have fulfilled all the law through Christ. And that is why we harp on the law. As our high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, Christ still lives and mediates for us today. That is how and why we talk about the law. Secondly, we see in these verses and in this passage, Christ fulfilling the promises. Read with me verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. He was waiting on the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. We don't know much about Simeon. We don't know if he is a high priest or a priest. We don't know if he's a scribe. We don't know if he's a Pharisee. We, we know three descriptors. We don't even know his age, really. Most people think he was an old man, but we don't really know his age. We, we have three descriptors, descriptors. We're told that he was righteous and devout. This word devout in Greek, eulabes, it's uh, unique to Luke authorship. Luke is the only one who uses this word throughout the entire New Testament. And in Luke's gospel, it's unique to Simeon. You guys know what devotion means. 
literally this word in Greek means to take hold of what is good. There's connotations here of, of how it's made um, of, of this uh, eager, long-suffering anticipation of a sure thing. An outward response of something that is truly trustworthy and worthwhile. This will matter in a minute. We see that Simeon is waiting on the consolation of Israel. Consolation is a word that means comfort. The Greek word for consolation is paraklesis. Um, does anybody know the Greek word for the title of the Holy Spirit, comforter? It, it's paraclete. So there's some wordplay going on here. Uh, he is filled with the paraclete, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, and he is waiting on the comfort of Israel. And I hope you catch this. This is important. I imagine his, his friends looking at him throughout his life. Simeon, God hasn't done anything in 400 years. What makes you think he's going to do it in your lifetime? But he's devout. He is eulabes. He is anxiously awaiting something that he knows is worthwhile. Why? Verse 26 gives us the answer. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Probably the mockery that he suffered, this is why. Because Holy Spirit, the paraclete, revealed truth to him. The reason for his devotion, his expectation, even after 400 years of silence and thousands of years from the initial promise, the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon the truth of God's promises. Could that be said of us? Are we waiting with anxious anticipation, with devotion for what God has promised? If we are Christians and the Holy Spirit has revealed truth to us through his word, like Simeon, are we waiting with expectation? And I get it. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus promised he'd come back. It's been 2,000 years since God has spoken authoritatively through one of his prophets. And I get it. He speaks authoritatively through his word. I love Sola Scriptura too. Um, but like in this, like I have said this before from this platform, it's hard for me to wait with anticipation on the imminence of Christ's return. It hasn't happened in 2,000 years. I don't know that it'll happen in my lifetime. I know that Simeon and his friends probably thought the same. And yet, the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. The Holy Spirit this morning has revealed the truth of the return of Christ. May we think on that with eminence. Um, one more thing about Simeon before we move on. Uh, it was said that the Holy Spirit was upon him. This is the fifth character in two chapters that has had some interaction with the Holy Spirit. John was filled in the womb. Mary was overshadowed uh, in the um, conception. Uh, Zechariah was filled. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke is the author of Luke and Acts. A theme of Luke and Acts is the Holy Spirit being poured out to the whole world. We see precursors here of that happening when the promises of God are coming to fruition. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, read with me verse 27. And he, Simeon, came in the Spirit into the temple. 
And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do to him according, do for him, sorry, according to the custom of the law, Simeon took Jesus up in his arms and blessed him and said, uh, we'll get to Simeon's song in a minute. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, um, again, to know the New Testament or to read the New Testament well, we have to know the Old Testament better. So Old Testament scholars in the room, what is the significance of the temple? It is the meeting place or the dwelling place of God. When Solomon built the temple, it was a permanent abode for the presence of God. No longer a movable tent in the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant rested, supposed to be permanently in the temple. It showed that God's presence was permanently resting with his people in the temple. People would go to the temple to meet with God. Then the temple was destroyed and it was rebuilt later. Um, Again, God's presence returning to the people. So what is some interesting symbolism happening here? Simeon was rested on by the Holy Spirit. So rested on by God. And he went into the temple. Mary carried Jesus for nine months, God the Son. So we could say that Mary was a sort of temple. Jesus, God incarnate, God the Son incarnate, bodily was in the temple. So God's presence was bodily, physically, literally in the temple. Why is this important? Again, Luke Acts. It's, it's, one, it's two books, but it's one work. We see throughout the gospel of Luke, Jesus associating himself with the temple. And ultimately, one of the reasons they want to kill him is he says, you see that temple? If you destroy it in three days, I'll raise it back up. And they're like, that's blasphemous. You can't destroy the presence of God. We want to crucify you right now. What's Jesus doing? He is showing that God is no longer going to dwell in the temple, but he is going to dwell with man. And then in Acts, what happens? Acts chapter 11, the Holy Spirit is this big explosion and he starts going to the Gentiles. Now, hear me, the Holy Spirit, God's presence is no longer in a temple. It's no longer bodily, physically on this earth in Jesus. The presence of God is in a new temple, you and me. There is some symbolism happening here. This comfort of Israel or this paraclesis of Israel is the paraclete, the comforter. We are walking temples. Now, read with me uh, Simeon's song, verses 29 to 32. Now, after uh, Simeon took Jesus up in his arms, I I didn't say this in the first, I have to get this out. As an introvert, if I had a child and someone um, walked up to me and like took him out of my arms and then sang these words over him, it'd be like my worst nightmare. Uh, So just (laughs) keep that in mind um, as we read. Lord, this is Simeon's song. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This is the, uh, <clears throat> the fourth Christmas carol in the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way. Mary sings her Magnificat. Zachariah sings his Benedictus. The shepherds, um, um, the angels sing their Gloria. And now we have Simeon singing his Nunc Dimittis in, in uh, Latin, permission to depart. This has been used throughout church history, spanning denominations and Roman and Protestant 
it's been used everywhere, as uh, liturgy through uh, evening prayer, through burial services, even in some sects of Christianity. It's been used to meet into the presence of God at the Lord's Supper. Uh, it, 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 what does it say? After all the waiting, after all the silence, God's promises are here. God, I've waited and I've waited and I've waited and now it's here and I can, I can die in peace. This is devotion. Eulabes. We see another theme of Luke's gospel. We have to hurry. Um, the promise of blessings to the nations. Uh, God's promise to Abraham to bless the nations is coming to fruition now. Light to the revelation of the Gentiles. Um, one covenant people from Abraham to Christ's return, not Israel, the church, and Israel. It's, it's one covenant. Um, glory to your people, Israel, your true people, Israel. Uh, Jesus is fulfilling the promises of God. Read with me uh, Simeon's prophecy, starting in verse 33. After <laughs> this crazy man ripped the child from his mother and saying this over him, which is wild. Uh, his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Um, me too. Uh, this is um, paradigmatic of like every encounter with Jesus in Luke's gospel is, is marveling, is uh, fear, is wonder, is awe, is trembling. Consequently, it's why we're all here this morning. We are marveling at Christ the Son together. It's why we're here. Um, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Fall, of, fall and rising, this prophecy over the Christ child of many in Israel. Uh, two things. First of all, the divisive nature of Jesus. Um, some will believe, some will reject. Even in Israel, uh, the true vine is Christ so that those who reject him are cut off, circumcision language, and those who are uh, believing in him of the Gentiles, you and me, are grafted into this true vine. So um, the fall and rising of many. Um, uh, it has to do also with sort of how we come to Jesus. The fall and rising. If we come in haughty, meritorious spirit of our own. Jesus, I have earned this. I have merited this conversation with you. I have merited your salvation in myself, we're cut away, falling. But if we come desperate, clinging to only our faith, Jesus, I come to you with nothing, we will be raised up. A sign that is opposed, again, the divisive nature of Christ throughout his ministry, he's opposed. Um, Simeon tells Mary that a sword will pierce her own heart, also foreshadowing the crucifixion linking and intertwining the Christmas season and the Easter season together. From the beginning, God's promises and the plan of redemption is being fulfilled in Christ so that many hearts may be revealed. Uh, the preaching of the word does that. That's what this is this morning. You will either be, it will either, either be revealed of your heart to have faith or it will be revealed in your heart to reject not because it's me, but because it's the word of God being preached. That's what's happening here. We see in these verses, Jesus was the fulfillment of all the promises of God. From Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, to the covenant with Abraham, the blessing of the nations, 
Israel's consolation and redemption is found in the person and work of Jesus. And now all who profess faith in him are the true Israel of God. Uh, We don't have time this morning to really detail look at uh, the prophetess Anna, so allow me to summarize it for you. Um, There is parallelism and mirroring in Simeon and Anna's story. Both have periods of waiting. Both uh, are expectant about something, and both Anna is a prophetess, so she is a mouthpiece of God. She knows the will of God. Simeon was told by God the will of God, so there's mirroring in this parallelism. Throughout Luke's gospel, you have male-female characters together, paralleled and, and mirrored again, showing Luke, showing that the gospel is for all. But look at uh, Anna's response to this, Christ child. It's, it's praise and gratitude. And I think truthfully, that is the response Luke wants to evoke in us, is praise and gratitude. In this season of gift giving, the greatest gift has already been given. Christ Jesus, the fulfillment of the law and the promises. In, uh, in closing this morning, I'd like to ask uh, two questions. What does this text teach us about Christ? Jesus Christ, firstly, is not simply a perfect sacrifice that takes away our sins. He is that. He is a sacrifice that takes away our sins. But in addition to that, not just half of the gospel, the full gospel, he is the true and better Adam who from birth perfectly fulfilled the entire requirement of the law. And now his merit is counted as ours. This text intertwines Christmas and Easter, showing that Christ was indeed circumcised or cut off for us. And again, his merit is now counted to those who by faith have been redeemed. And this text teaches us that Christ and his righteousness is the ultimate gift, are are, are the ultimate gift of Christmas. What does this text teach us about ourselves? What is a practical takeaway? Well, simply put, this passage gives us new perspective on seasons of waiting. Simeon and Anna waited their entire lives, maybe for a chance to see the Messiah. 400 years of divine silence preceded this story from Malachi to Matthew. Again, I ask the question, how many died waiting for God's promises? Can we wait well? I don't know what season of waiting you're in this morning. Are you waiting for your next career path? Are you waiting for God to bless you with children or a spouse? Are you waiting for healing and you've been longing and desperate for physical, emotional, marital, financial, spiritual healing? Are you waiting for your child to return to the Lord? Gordon, you preached about covenants and God wants to save my kid. When is it going to happen? Are you just waiting for guidance in life?
I could give many vapid platitudes about how God is going to fulfill everything. But honestly, I don't know how or when your season of waiting will be answered. I do know this text puts our waiting into perspective. Waiting teaches us to have faith. God, you, you, you're good. And this waiting is hard, but I'm going to have faith in your goodness. Waiting teaches us to have patience. I'm a product of the microwave generation. Um, hate waiting. I don't ever cook anything that I can't microwave. Waiting teaches us to have contentment. I'm longing for something that I see off in my future, but I, I am getting by now. Maybe I can be content with what I have now. Waiting teaches us to trust God's sovereignty. Waiting deepens our dependence on God. God, without this thing, I can't make it through, but, but I am making it through, and it's because you're giving me breath. Everything, Colossians 1, is held together by you, and including my life, including this breath. I'm, I'm going to be dependent on you in this season of waiting. Waiting can strengthen our devotion to God. Out of desperation, we cling to the only sure hope that we have, even in silence. But I think that this text ultimately teaches us to prioritize our seasons, uh, teaches us to prioritize what we already have in seasons of waiting. Simeon and Anna had the same response to what God had revealed, gratitude and praise. Do you think even for a moment, even for just this morning, whatever season of waiting you're in, you could shift your perspective to what you're longing for, to, to what God has already given? Could you shift your perspective and focus just this morning on the glorious gift of the Messiah, even if you are in a season of waiting? Because Christ fulfilled the law, and he is the fulfillment of all the promises.